0: Well, everybody loves a love story. Everybody loves a love story. I read a, a love story, or at least a snippet of one yesterday, that uh, touched me so much. I thought, I've got to tell the dear people here about this. Maybe you've heard this story. It comes out of Scotland. A couple that uh, became husband and wife were in uh, about their fourth decade of marriage. They were married for 38 years when the husband was diagnosed with an illness. Diagnosed with something that a lot of families have struggled with, Alzheimer's disease. And his wife had to begin that painful process of losing this man that she loves as his mind was less and less capable of really grasping things and remembering things. It, it reached a point in their marriage after the disease had progressed where he didn't realize anymore that they were married and he looked at her and didn't understand that they were husband and wife. And so he said to her, he, he had been a very honorable man. And he said, we shouldn't be living together like this. He said, I need to marry you. And he wasn't kidding. And that's how he understood reality. And so she said, in so many words, when somebody says that to you, you don't say, oh, we're already married. She handled it with a lot more of a, of a delicacy, a delicate nature or grace. And she thought he'll probably forget about this. Well, he didn't. He kept saying, we need to get married. We need to get married. And so you know what she did? She began to plan a second wedding. She contacted friends and family, and she said, we are going to have a, an outdoor ceremony at, at a beautiful lakeside location near our home. I'd like you to come. She wanted to just go that extra mile for her husband. The day of the wedding ceremony came, And she was still holding out this thought that he'd probably forget about it, but that didn't happen. He woke up that morning and he said, today's the day. And so off they went with friends and family gathered and they committed themselves to one another a second time with guests looking on, they took their vows. The wife said this, there's been a lot of sadness and a lot of frustration dealing with that disease. But she said, despite all of his fogginess, today has been pure joy. Everybody loves a love story. I think there's something powerful about love that perseveres. Some of us here today haven't had to go to that degree. I'd say most of us in loving somebody through illness and sickness. But it's a beautiful story. It's a true story. And on Resurrection Sunday today, what a beautiful reminder this is. That the greatest love story that's ever been told has been fulfilled and given in a very clear way to each one of us. The coming of Jesus, the Messiah, is the world's most profound love story. It, It means that a perfect someone has never forgotten you and he never will. You've not been forgotten. His commitment to you is not forgotten. His love for you is not forgotten. Love has a name. And it's Jesus. And he has made a life and death commitment to you. He has made a life and death eternal commitment to you to show you his love, to show you his hope, to release you from life's prison. That's who he is. We call the news of Jesus' birth and the news of his resurrection and his whole life, we call it the good news, right? The good news. You're used to hearing that. But you know, it's only good news if it's true. It wouldn't be good news at all. It would be a horrible deception if the reality of what we proclaim to be true about Jesus, if it wasn't true, if Jesus, uh, as a person of history, did not arise from death, if he's not who he claimed to be, if all of his disciples were deceived, and, 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 and if Jesus was an imposter, and if the whole thing just kind of came crashing down, we wouldn't have any good news here. We'd actually have pretty harmful news but the good news is good news. For some people, it's just a little too good to be true. Years ago, there was a gentleman who attended services here for some months as a self-avowed atheist. And you might say, well, why would he come to church if he was an atheist? Well, we invite everybody here. We don't have any sign out there that says atheists not allowed. You might be here today with a very secular mindset and say, I'm only here because somebody drugged me here. See, that was kind of his case Uh, He, I found out later he would only come here because his girlfriend told him, I won't date you unless you come to church with me. So he came to church, but not because he really felt like it. And so many Sundays, I have to tell you, this is kind of funny, he'd run to get out of here. The last guy he wanted to visit with was me. He didn't know me, but he didn't want to know me. And I had the hardest time trying to just shake that guy's hand. He just darted out of here. If you know me a little bit, I'm kind of a people person. I enjoy getting to know folks. I could not break through that guy's walls or barriers. He wouldn't let me. And then this craziest thing happened. Months passed by, and he was here every week, but I could never visit with him. But then he calls me. That was the crazy thing, and he asked for a meeting. I thought, goodness, I won't turn that down. So we had a meeting, and he came and shared with me how he was no longer an atheist. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't really, I could hardly believe it. And yet I could sense it was very true, very real of him. His mind was changing. He said, I've been considering the claims of Christianity. I don't doubt them anymore. And by the end of that time that we visited in my office, he trusted Christ as his Savior. It was incredible. You know, the message of resurrection, the message of Jesus will change you today if you'll let it. Has your life been changed yet by Jesus? Because he'll do that. He'll change you if you'll let him. The truth of the gospel is, it's true. And the good news of the gospel becomes real in your life when you embrace the truth for yourself personally. Jesus claimed to be the truth, not a truth, not a way, not a life. That's a pretty bold claim, to claim you are ultimate truth. Jesus made the claim. I'm sure his disciples, after they saw him arose from death, I'm sure they never doubted that again, that he could do what he said he'd do. Because he said, I have a power. I have authority. Before he ever went to the cross, he said, I have authority to lay my life down and to raise it up again. And they, they witnessed that. They saw him die. They thought it was over. They thought he'd, they'd never see him again alive. Three days later, they began to see him as he appeared to them. And yet... A little bit of Thomas is in most of us today. You know Thomas, right? Thomas the doubter, one of Jesus' disciples. He didn't, he did, he didn't witness Jesus at the same time, the resurrected Jesus at the same time the others did. And so he, he said, I've not seen him, and I'm not going to believe that what you're telling me is even true, that he is risen from death, unless I can put my hands in the nail prints in his hands. He was that, that convinced of the death of Jesus. He said, and unless I can put my hand in the side where he was wounded, I'm not even going to believe what you're saying. And a few days passed, and Christ appeared to him. And Thomas looked at him, and Jesus looked at Thomas. I tell this because I think there's a little bit of Thomas in all of us, and that's okay. God can handle our questions, and he can, he's got broad shoulders. He can handle our our, our queries, our, our, our challenges, and even our cynicism. And Thomas, Jesus looked at him, and he didn't push him away and say, why wouldn't you believe in me? He didn't say that. He said, Thomas, he said, put your hand in my hands. See where the nail prints are? Put your hand in, in my side. And he said, and Thomas fell to his knees, and he said, my Lord and my God. That's what he said. It's John chapter 20 if you're wondering where am I getting that. It's not from my head, it's from the, the Bible. Jesus proved that he was who he said he was. And then, he, and then Jesus' words to Thomas were really, really good. He said, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. But how blessed for those who've not seen me and yet believe. Now that's where you and I come in, because we, didn't, we don't have the chance to see the visible risen Jesus, do we, the resurrected body? But if we believe, then Jesus said, You're blessed. I hope you do believe today. I hope that uh, you're not questioning the truth of who Jesus is. He is so good. Jesus chose us the way home to God. The psalmist said, God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Or he doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for those who fear him. God invites us to know him. We're invited to know our creator. And Christianity, I'll say it again, is the world's most hopeful message, but only if it's true, and only if you embrace it personally. It's one thing to know something is true, or to believe it, it's another thing to embrace it, isn't it? You know, if I see a stop sign, but I don't stop, I, I know it's true, it's a true sign, it's there for a reason, and I blow through it, and I get hit, I T-bone somebody, or they T-bone me, I've ignored truth. I've just walked right past it, and that doesn't apply to me, but It does. And so truth is, is truth. People have a hard time with that today. You hear people say all the time, you believe your truth and I'll believe my truth. And as and though truth is that relative or subjective, I want to talk to you about that just a little bit this morning. Just a little bit this morning. There is no such thing some people will say as objective truth. I'm not saying that, but that's a very popular idea. But do you see what a self-defeating statement that that is? To say, it's basically asserting a truth. I insist on this truth. There's no such thing as truth. It doesn't even make sense. That, that is a self-defeating statement. It's like saying, I can't speak a word in English, and I just did. So to make an assertion that there's no such thing as truth is, is a self-defeating statement. Truth, defined accurately, is what is true to reality. Reality. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, he's proclaiming himself, that he, that he's proclaiming that as a reality. It's not poetry, it's not a metaphor. He's saying, I am truth, personified, and this is the reality of life. There's no other way home to God but through me. Let's look at some statements about truth, great truths about truth. We'll call them that. Truth is discovered, it's not invented. So when Sir Isaac Newton wrote about the laws of gravity, He didn't invent it, did he? He just discovered it. It was already at work. He discovered objective truth, and he wrote about it, and so we can read what he learned, and we build a lot of science upon Newton and what he discovered. But nobody created that truth. It was discovered. It wasn't wasn't something he or others invented. Truth is transcultural. If something is true, it's true for all people in all places at all times. Again, it's not subjective. When people, when people used to proclaim that the earth is flat, they found out it isn't, so they had a wrong belief about it and that things didn't change uh, about the truth, but just people's understanding of the truth changed. Two plus two equals four for everyone, everywhere and at every time. So truth is truth, whether you're here or in China today or Japan or somewhere else, what's true here is true there. Truth is unchanging, even though our beliefs about truth change. My analogy there is when we, when we began to believe that the earth was round instead of flat, the truth about the earth didn't change. Only our belief about the truth changed. But people believed for a long time that the earth was flat and that ships would go off the edge of the earth if they went out too far at sea. Beliefs cannot change a fact, no matter how sincerely they are held. Somebody today could sincerely believe that World War II isn't over. But it is over. But they could could believe that it isn't. They'd be sincerely wrong. Somebody can sincerely believe the world is flat, but that only makes them sincerely mistaken. Truth is truth. It's provable. It's quantifiable. It's measurable. Truth is not affected by the attitude of the one professing it. It's not affected by the attitude of the one affecting it. For example... An arrogant person doesn't make the truth he professes false because he's passionate about it. That doesn't make what he's saying true or false. A humble person doesn't make the error he professes true. Our attitude doesn't, doesn't affect truth or what we profess to be true. All truths are, again, absolute truths. Truths. Contrary beliefs are possible, but contrary truths are not possible. And if you're wondering, where did you get all of those? It's a great book called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It comes out of that book by uh, a couple of good theologians. We can believe everything is true, but we cannot make everything true. And truth is so vital to our well-being, is it not? We're all believers in truth at some level. Even if we want to argue that truth is relative, That's really a a false statement to make that. When you get on an airplane, do you demand the truth that your pilot is sober? I think you do demand that. You don't even have to worry about it, right? You know there are people at work to make sure those pilots are sober. Sometimes one gets in that isn't. That's a scary thing. We demand truth in that arena of life. When you get on an aircraft, do you expect that that aircraft is airworthy? Of course you do. You, you, you trust it's been maintained and that people know just what's going on with that aircraft. You wouldn't get on it if you didn't believe that. You demand truth. When you go to your medical doctor, do you, do you want truth from your doctor? Or do you just want them to kind of haphazard a guess on what's going on with you? I think you want truth. If your doctor's going to prescribe a medication, do you want to just say, Hey, doc, any old medicine will do. You got anything experimental? You just want to see what it'll do, to do to, if it'll help. But you don't want that. You, in fact, want your doctor to be very committed to diagnose you right and to treat you right. Because if they make a mistake with truth there, you might not make it. It's that important. Now, we need truth and rely on it every day in so many facets of our lives. We don't want to deny that truth exists. What a silly argument that that would be. We want truth in relationships. We want truth as people tell us about our investments. We want truth across the board in so many arenas in life. But where it's difficult for human beings, we're funny as human beings. We're, we're funny creatures. We demand truth in certain arenas, but in certain, certain areas, we're not sure about it or we're uncomfortable by it. And I can prove that to you really from example today. In the moral and spiritual areas, we easily get discomforted when it comes to truth. You ever heard that saying, you can't take the truth? That could be applied personally to most, if not all of us at times, when it comes to these arenas, moral and spiritual truth. We don't want to hear truth in certain areas of life because it makes us uncomfortable. It, it, It doesn't feel good. Who wants to be told that they're a sinner? Who wants to be told that they're, that I'm acting selfishly. Who wants to hear that from their spouse? Who wants, to, nobody. Who wants to be told, you're greedy? Who wants to hear that? But sometimes those are the very things that are accurate and true. And if we can acknowledge them, we can do something about them. We can change or we can look for ways to change. Jesus was addressing religious people when he said these words. They thought they had truth all figured out. And he said, truly, 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 I love this. Jesus, who is truth, says to them, truly, truly. So this is pretty much truth, right? You couldn't get much more. That's like a triple play there. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. That's an allusion to life with God forever, being united with your Father in heaven. I'm going to pause there. Every one of us in this room right now is either a son of Adam, or a daughter of Eve. We are descendants from our first human parents who fell into sin. And every subsequent generation of people since then has original sin, has a sin nature. If you are a parent, you know that as you have children, you don't have to, to, you have to teach them to do right. You don't teach them about what is wrong. They find that. Why is that? Why do they gravitate towards those things that uh, that are are not the right things because of our sin nature and it starts to show up when we're very young we all have it we don't escape it even as believers and jesus is bringing that basic truth to religious people in this particular dialogue and they're not having it they're saying oh we're descendants of abraham we're quite a holy lot of people Uh, we know our 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 human ancestry and Abraham, he was a friend of God. And, and who are you to say that we're not free people? They were so mistaken. They were so enslaved. They weren't even free in their own country because Rome was the power that be of that day. They were the superpower and they had the whole land of Israel under their control. And here these, these high-minded religious leaders are saying, we're sure free. They were not free politically and they weren't free spiritually. And Jesus was saying that to them. He's saying, I know, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me. And you know something? You know this. Eventually they did. They put him on the cross. It was the religious people that did that. It wasn't the pimps and the prostitutes that hung up Jesus on the cross. They knew they were sinners. They had nothing to say to him about, you know, you're a sinner. They knew they were. But the religious people had a hard time with the truth of who Jesus was. And so the word of God says that this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. John writes, John, who was a contemporary of Jesus, a disciple, he says, the light has come, but men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now, that's the truth. What evidence is there for Human enslavement to sin, that was the challenge that Jesus listeners had. They said, We just we're free. How can you say we're slaves to sin? Well, I'll give you three simple quick proofs that aren't hard to find at all, that to tell us about the reality of our sinfulness. One is proof that is scriptural. The Bible tells us that we are sinners. I know that's not happy news and nobody wants to really hear that today, but it's the truth, and if we can accept the truth, we can do something good about that truth. David who was an ancestor to Jesus, said, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Paul to the Romans said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You say, is that all you got? I could give you a thousand verses if we had time. But those are just a few. But we have biblical evidence that we are, by nature, at war with our creator. Think about that. A loving, perfect, holy God creates humanity in his image, but they volitionally choose to go against him because they have free agency, they have free will, Adam and Eve. And by choosing against him, their nature changes. It's corrupted, it becomes fallen. And it affects us to this day. It affects every generation of humanity. And so the scripture comes along and it says, you have fallen. But as in Adam all die, the Bible says, but in Christ all shall be made alive. God brings hope here. He doesn't say, look at what happened. Oh, I'm done with this. I'm running away from you. I'm leaving this earth to just smolder and go its own way and and go into oblivion. No, he promises a savior, Genesis 3.15, right after the fall. But other proof, proof that is personal. Our troubled consciences tell us that we are really in our depth of being left to ourselves, we are at war with our creator. Are there times, I'll give you an example, that you would rather God not know what you're doing? Are there times that you would rather him not know what you've been thinking about? Do you ever say something that isn't true? Do you ever take something that isn't yours? We're all guilty of so many things. And a guilty conscience is an alarm system. It's an alarm of war. It's saying there's a war going on. You're at war with your creator. It testifies simply that we are sinners and we need help in our sinful state. We are people who go against God in many ways every day in our, in our own strength, in our own thinking, our own ways. We, you need proof? There's lots of proof. And then a third, briefly, a third area is proof that's practical, that we are fallen people. That's the lack of peace that exists among people. You could look at that on a global scale. We have wars. And rumors of wars. We are watching Korea again right now with some, some great intrepidation. So many things. And, but bring it down into, into not just nations, but bring it down into personal relationships. Have you had any conflict with anybody recently? Maybe in your own family? Maybe at your workplace? Why are we not at peace? Why is the world not at peace? Why is the peace process an unending forever process? Why does peace not last that, again, is an alarm system triggering us, to helping us realize that we are, we are really sinners who lack peace. We have endless lawsuits and feuds and even petty gossip among people displays a lack of peace with other people. We gossip because we don't have peace. We have conflict in our hearts. We need help. If you see all of that and you accept it, you and I then are in a good place because we can see Jesus more clearly. God's word declares that God is a great reconciler you know this is so profound god befriends his enemies look at that verse on the screen it says for if while we were god's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son and he's the initiator right he sends we're the enemies but god says i love my enemies god says i love these people and and he is the one who initiates the reconciliation through the death of his son he gives us his son Paul says, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through the life of Jesus? It's saying this, that even as the battle rages between humanity and God, God says, I love you. And I love you so much that I'm gonna reconcile you to myself through my son. I'm gonna initiate peace. I'm gonna initiate a peace process. I'm gonna sign a peace treaty with humanity in the blood of my own son. And all those who put their faith in him will be saved. To the Colossians we read, For in him, that is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross displays God's ability to deal justly with human sin and establish a bridge for his love to cross over into our lives. God initiates the peace process, the peace of the, of the cross, which is where Jesus spilled his blood. The place where God's love and God's holiness embrace is at the cross. And I want you to think of that image for a moment. If you and I had touched the literal cross of Jesus, you'd have got a, you'd have got a splinter in your hand. We're not talking about something that is just a, you know, a picture of a cross. It was a literal cross. How does this become the central emblem of our faith? Well, as I said a minute ago, it's the place where God's love and his holiness embrace. Why, why do we say that? Because it was on the cross of Jesus that God was able to affix, to demonstrate his love for us, but also affix his punishment for our sins upon his own son. That's profound. Some people have a hard time with that. They say, God must be a, a child abuser. I have a hard time believing in a God who, who does that to his own son. You know, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day what you and I think of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. What matters is what God thinks of it. And he said, it's sufficient. At that place, my holiness is on display. Sin is a problem and I'm going to deal with it in the lives of all humanity. But he says, I'll deal with it upon the life of my precious son and I'll bring him back to life. I'll, he will raise from death and all who look on him will have their sins forgiven because of what he bore for them. And so you see his love on the cross, and you see his justice over sin poured on the same cross. It's profound, isn't it? That's why the cross is the most important uh, centerpiece of our faith. As Philip Ryken has said, every other religion beyond Christianity tells us to present to God the best record we can. Christianity teaches instead that God offers his perfect record to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see that? Double, it's called a double imputation or a, a double transfer. God says, I'm taking all of your sinfulness of, of your life personally, of anyone's life who comes to faith in Jesus, and I'm putting that sinfulness on the cross and letting justice prevail on that. Death. The blood of Jesus will will cover that sin. And I'm taking the perfect righteousness of my son, who's, who's the only man who ever lived a perfect life, and I'm conferring that upon sinners, all who trust in Jesus. Double imputation, double transfer. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You receive it. John said, for as many as received him, that is Jesus, who put their faith in him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now, if you came to my house today and you knocked on the door if I'm not having a nap, I'll come and let you in. Even if I'm having a nap, I'll get up. It's too cold. I wouldn't leave you outside. But what would happen if you came to my house and you knocked on the door and nobody came, just the dog and he barked? You wouldn't feel very welcome. I'd need to receive you. I hope you'd receive me if I came to your house today. I'm going to test this and visit somebody here today. I'm not going to name who. No, we need to, we know. We understand this. We need to open our hearts. We need to open our doors. Jesus in Revelation chapter three, verse 20 says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, my father and I will come in and have fellowship with him. God doesn't come barnstorming into your life. He asks you to invite Jesus into your life by faith. He won't come crashing in on you. He's waiting for you to open the door. And the Bible says to as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God, to those who believe, who believe in his name. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian martyr. He was arrested by the Nazis for standing up for his faith. He was incarcerated, and just shortly before World War II was over, the Nazis got him. They were He was the victim of one of their last atrocities. They put him to death. But before he had to face that hanging, death by hanging, he wrote from a prison cell these words days before he was executed. He said, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be open from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Advent is with capital A, is referring to the arrival of Jesus. He was saying just like I am stuck in this cell until somebody comes and lets me out. He said, that's a picture of where humanity is. We are all in a prison, a prison cell of doubt and and of frustration, of anger, of sinfulness, of all of the problems that go with being sinners, and we can't get out on our own. But Jesus comes to let us out. He didn't put us in prison, but he comes to let us out. Luke 19, 10, Jesus declares his mission. He said, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In other words, he says, I've come to let you out of your prison, your prison of sin. I'm here to give you life. He stood up in a synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and he spoke these words. The spirit of the Lord, Jesus said, is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Anyone here today needing to get out of prison? Have you ever come to Jesus and said, I need you to let me out of this. I trust you to get me out of here. I want what you offer to me. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you. I've tried to get out of this prison cell and I can't win. I can't get out of it. But you've come as my liberator. I believe that. For Christ, let's read this together. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. next one. God justifies the ungodly. Now this next one you've really got to you've really got to uh, talk a little louder, man, you're just too quiet. so let me hear you on this. here we go. For the scripture says. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, it was that very passage in a Bible like this that my, my friend who was a former atheist who sat in my office that day, he read those very words. I had him read it. I don't want to read it to him. Nobody wants to get read to too long. I said, would you read this? And he read this. Remember, he'd come from skepticism, from really atheism, to skepticism, to possible belief, to considering the claims of Jesus, to that point where he looked at this, and he read that, and he looked up from the Bible, and he he stared at me, I'll never forget this. He said, Kent, I left out the most important part, and I said, what's that? He said, "I, I haven't called on the name of the Lord. I believe on him now. I've come that far, but I've not called on him. And then I looked at him, and I said, well, could I help you with that? Could I lead you in how to call on the Lord? And he shocked me again. He says, no, I know what to do. And so I, he started to pray. So I closed my eyes, and I did something I never do. I peeked. <laughs> I did. And he, wasn't, he was praying, but I don't know why I opened my eyes. I don't do that generally, but I did. I opened my eyes. He wasn't on the couch anymore across from me. He was kneeling. He was on the floor of my office. He was praying, God, thank you for loving me, but I, I need you. I've not called on you and I call on you today. Be my Savior. And he walked out of here a new man. You know, maybe someone here today needs to have a moment like that. Easter came to change you. So the question is, are you changed by the power of Jesus' love? Have you said yes to him? Have you called upon him? It's not enough to know about him. Have you called on him, my dear friend? Have you trusted him? I know of a woman who wanted to join a church, and she was interviewed by the elders and they said, Well, what to, what how do you define Christianity? And how do you more importantly, they said, how, what makes a person a Christian? And she started talking a lot about the cross, and yet the way she talked about it led them to kind of think, hmm, does she understand it personally? Does she see that the message wasn't just for everybody else, that Jesus didn't just die for everybody else, but not her? And they said, Have you have you applied that to your own life? They said, Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross not just for the sins of others, but for your sins? And she says, I've never thought about it that way before. And there are a lot of people like her in church. They've heard about the cross, they've heard about the salvation message, and they've understood it at a certain level, but they've not yet applied it to their personal life. How have you thought about the cross? Have you called upon the name of the Lord to be your Savior today? My prayer and my hope is that we will see ourselves as we are, that our Sight will be true to reality. Our understanding, our self-understanding will be true to reality. We'll see we are sinners in need of a Savior and that the Savior's come. And he's outside the door of our prison cell saying, turn to me in faith today. Father, we come humbly today to the truth again that we are a needy people. We don't want to deny that. Help us not to deny that. Help us to believe the truth that we are loved, but that sin has separated us from experiencing your love in a way that we can enjoy it and and walk in it. Even as believers, it crowds into our lives so easily. Would you help us each today to take that step of trusting Jesus? For some, it's a recommitment here today that is necessary just to start over. Say, Lord, you've saved me, but would you... Show me again your hope and power. Help me to start fresh with you. Give me a sense of your presence and your joy. And help me to turn away from things that are souring my life. For someone here today, it's a prison, Lord, that they've never left. And they're living in a prison of just lostness, but they sense the reality of Jesus' love. Help, help anyone in that place today to say, I need Jesus. I'm going to come to him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.